Hi, I'm Danny, and you're listening to episode 2 of 10601 Sabo, The Night Before. In the first episode, I set out an account of how events unfolded on the morning of October 29th, 1996, when Catalina Palomino was murdered. I believe that account is broadly consistent with the witness statements given to police and with the testimony given at trial. However, as is often the case, the witness statements don't agree with each other on every point. As is also often the case, some of the witness statements changed over time. For that reason, I'm going to break down all the witness statements over the next two episodes. One thing that seems unusual about the statements in this case is that we don't have the detective's handwritten notes, so we don't know how close what they subsequently typed up is to what they heard and wrote down at the time. We also don't have any audio recordings of the statements, although that doesn't mean they don't exist or that they weren't made at the time. The detectives did have recording equipment available to them. I haven't been able to find out whether recording interviews would be normal practice for HPD at the time, or whether they would usually release audio recordings now if they existed. In short, we don't know exactly what anyone said at any point. I don't have any reason to believe that what was written down is drastically different to what people said, but equally I think it's hard to rely on very specific details about their statements. There's other reasons we should exercise caution with some of the statements too. Specifically I'm talking about the statements of Pharrell Smith, aka Youngster, Kenneth Driver, aka KD, Eva Mondragon, and of course Jennifer Jeffley. The reasons should be fairly clear. Catalina's wallet was found behind the fridge in Eva's apartment which means it's almost certain that someone in that apartment committed a crime that morning. That crime could have been stealing Catalina's wallet after she was already dead, but I think it's more likely that they stole the wallet during the commission of the murder. Without knowing which occupant of the apartment that was, we should bear in mind that any or all of them could be covering up some guilt. Just a quick aside for any non-US listeners, when I say Catalina's wallet, I don't mean what we in the UK would call a purse i.e. a smallish leather pouch for your, your cash and your cards. And when I say Catalina's purse, conversely, I don't mean what we would call a purse, I mean what we would call a handbag. I know it's confusing, but you will get the hang of it. There are a number of different ways of looking at the statements and forming a picture of what happened. And the best place to look at those statements, by the way, is jenniferjeffleycase.wordpress.com. Now, I'm not trained in statement analysis, I'm not trained in anything about crime investigation, but I am a teacher, so I know a little bit about how people learn. Everyone's brain works differently, everyone learns differently, and everyone remembers things differently. And no one approach is any better than the other. You could read all the statements one by one and then read the trial testimony, or read someone's statement and then their trial testimony. You could try to split the statements into different time periods and compare what each person said about different events. Or you could read them all and just follow the movements of a specific person or people, ignoring other things that might distract you. I would encourage you to read all the statements in all these different ways and more and find a way that helps you and your unique learning style to piece these tragic events together. What I'm going to do is go by time period, ranging from the night before the murder until shortly after the police arrive on the scene. I'll explain who said what and then I'll revisit some key issues in the statements. But I have an important request to make first. Please don't try to contact any of these witnesses. For starters, some of them have passed away and at least two of them are in prison. I can guarantee you won't be getting a response from Pharrell Smith unless you hold a seance. As for the witnesses who are alive and not in prison, I've contacted them. Other researchers have contacted them, and if they wanted to talk, they would have responded. They didn't respond to me, and I can't say I blame them. These people went for a really horrible and traumatic event. Keith Truesdale ran into Catalina's apartment not knowing what or who he would find. That was an act of great bravery. Nurse Doris Gibson tried to save Catalina's life, even though she must have known on some level that it was hopeless. Pam Wiley covered Catalina's dead, beaten body with a comforter to protect her dignity. 
They weren't just witnesses, they were active and unwilling participants dragged into the immediate aftermath of the murder of a woman who by all accounts was loved by everyone who met her. There isn't anything wrong or suspicious about them not wanting to talk about the murder. They spoke to police, they testified at trial, and they don't owe us anything now. I can't stop you from contacting them. I'm not your mum. But I really don't think you should. I hope you don't. And even if you do, I don't think they'll respond. So let's look at the events leading up to the murder, starting the night before. According to Pharrell Smith, aka Youngster, he and his brother KD went to Eva's to see Jen, who Youngster said he had known for about three weeks, and who had moved in with Eva about two weeks before the murder. They arrived about 9 or 10 pm and hung out there for a while with Eva and Jen, with KD in the living room with Eva and 15 year old Jennifer in the bedroom with 18 year old Youngster. I'll let you draw your own conclusions about that. They left to go to a friend named Petey's house across the street at around 11.30 and went back to Eva's at about 1am. Eva wasn't happy and tried to get them to leave, saying her baby daddy was on his way over with their daughter. This appears to be untrue by the way, and just an excuse to get rid of the boys. Youngster went into the bedroom to tell Jen that some of his homeboys were coming to pick him and KD up and go to the southwest side. Jennifer was half asleep so Youngster jumped into bed and tried to wake her, remember she's 15. But because he and KD had been drinking, they ended up falling asleep, with Youngster in bed next to Jennifer and KD on the floor in the bedroom. As an aside here, I keep mentioning Jennifer's age. I should point out that she was telling people she was 18, so Youngster may have believed that she was 18, but let's be very clear, she was a child and Youngster was an adult. Okay, so that's Youngster's version of the night before. This is KD's and there are a few differences. So while Youngster's account begins with the brothers going to Eva's at about 9 or 10 p.m., KD starts with Youngster picking him up at about 5, quote, with some of his guys, end quote, and they drove around smoking weed until around 7 p.m. After that, Youngster drove KD to Eva's, but this time there's someone else with them, one of Youngster's, quote, homeboys, end quote, and they went there and they smoked some more weed. When they arrived, Minnesota v Chicago was on Monday Night Football in the second quarter, and yes, I checked, that is the game that was on that night, and then homeboy left, although apparently he didn't leave for long. KD then describes going to the store, without specifying who was there, to buy a blunt cigar and then coming back to the apartment to smoke some more. He then says that Homeboy left for good, so it seems like Homeboy left to go to the store and some of the others went with him. After Homeboy leaves the apartment, it seems like the people left there were Eva, Jennifer, Youngster and KD, as in Youngster's story. Eva went to sleep on the couch in the living room and KD, Youngster and Jennifer slept in the bedroom, with KD on the floor and the other two in the bed. They woke up the next morning in the same sleeping arrangements, except Jennifer was gone. So, differences. KD's account begins a few hours earlier and contains a new person, the unnamed homeboy, who Youngster didn't mention, and omits the trip to PT's and omits Eva's efforts to get the boys to leave. What remains consistent are the sleeping arrangements and the fact that both of the boys were under the influence. Now, Youngster tries to point the finger solely at KD here, saying that he was, quote, leaning hard, end quote, but he admits that they had both been drinking, while KD openly admits several times that both the boys were smoking weed. I don't want to sound all just say no here, but let's be honest, that probably explains some of their difficulties in recalling the events accurately. But I think another reason for these discrepancies is that both boys, Youngster in particular, were leaving out details and changing parts of what happened to avoid getting in trouble with the police. Youngster never mentions that they were smoking weed, for example. And I'll just remind you again that we can't be sure exactly what either of them said because we don't have any recordings. Now let's look at Eva's account of the night before. She says that Youngster and his brother, whose name she doesn't know, turn up at about 11pm. 
There's no mention of Homeboy in her statements to police, although at trial she mentions there was a Hispanic guy with them, presumably Homeboy. She didn't mention anything to the police about trying to get the brothers to leave, although she did say that she wasn't happy about, quote, all these boys hanging around, end quote. At trial, Eva essentially echoes Youngster's account of her trying to get them to leave by saying that her child's father was coming, but she says that they didn't leave, which we know. She also says that she slept in the living room on the couch, as the others do, although interestingly, she says that KD was in the living room on the chair in the morning, while everyone else, including Jennifer, says he was asleep in the bedroom. And that isn't the only inconsistency in Eva's accounts of the night before. While we've been denied a request for the grand jury testimony, we know some of what she said there based on the trial. Eva confirms during her trial testimony that she told the grand jury that she had been at work the night before the murder, which we know that she wasn't. Now that's a pretty big discrepancy. The prosecutor, Dee Glazer, tries everything to portray this as an honest mistake, but Jennifer's lawyer, Brian Coyne, isn't having any of it. Now, let's try to be fair to Eva here. The grand jury was in April, over five months after the murder, and according to her trial testimony, when they came to get her to testify, she, quote, was literally on stage, end quote. But it is a pretty big discrepancy, and we'll come back to some of Coyne's questions about this a bit later. So, now for Jennifer's version of events. She says the youngster, whose full name she apparently can't remember, even though she says he's her boyfriend, and his brother, whose name she also apparently can't remember, were at Eva's and had been there, quote, off and on most of the day, end quote. Interestingly, Jennifer says she knows the brother's nickname starts with M for Mike, but the only nickname we ever hear for the brother, Kenneth Driver, is KD. Anyway, Jennifer says the youngster left at about 11.45pm, saying that he was going to the store, which fits with what KD said. She then goes to sleep, but gets woken by youngster at 1am, who tells her Eva told him to leave because her child's father was bringing her daughter over, which fits with youngster's own statement and with Eva's trial testimony. He asked Jennifer to stay up with him until his ride came, which is weird because both youngster and KD say he drove his own car there, but Jennifer kept falling asleep. When Jennifer wakes up in the morning, youngster is in bed with her and KD's on the floor in the bedroom. But I think we can infer some more information about what Jennifer's version of events was from a question Coyne asked Eva during cross-examination. Like I said, Eva told the grand jury that she'd been at work the night before the murder, and Jennifer's lawyer was questioning her about this on the stand. From the transcript. Coyne, when you told the grand jury, or when you made the statement about working that night, did you have a reason for misleading them? Eva, I didn't try to mislead anyone. I was working so much, like I said, under the circumstances they came and got me, I told them the best of my recognition, what I could remember, and I believed to have worked that night, and that's what I told them. Coin, you weren't maybe trying to cover up the fact that you had been involved in a pot party. Eva, no. Coin, had you been? Eva, no. Now firstly, pot party? Could you be any more 90s? <laughs> you thought I was just saying no, this is another level. But anyway, as far as we know, Coyne didn't have access to the statements in which KD said they'd been smoking weed. But he got the idea that they'd been having a pot party from someone, and I'm pretty sure the only person that could have been was Jennifer. We also have another account of the night before. Keith, the maintenance man, said, quote, On this same date, 10-28-96, I called the police to report a large group of black males which were trespassing on the property outside apartment number 58, but the police didn't arrive, end quote. Now, you'll notice that Keith didn't specify a time, but there's an unsigned note from someone who worked for Green Arbor saying, in their own handwriting, quote, During the early hours of the morning, our maintenance tech Keith called the police to report the residents in number 58 were having a party in the parking area around number 58. So I think we can be pretty confident the party was late at night or early in the morning. I said the statement was unsigned. To be clear, the signature of Janine Smith, an employee of Green Arbor, is below this statement on the same page. 
but it's written in a different pen and a different handwriting. And it's above another statement in that handwriting, which is also signed below. So I think it's fair to say that Janine was signing for the below statement and she signed for it twice. That means the statement about Keith calling the police about the party in the parking lot is unsigned. And I think it's probably from Pam Wiley or Lavonna, the other two employees who are mentioned as working in the leasing office. The unsigned statement also mentions the note writer talking to Eva about the heavy traffic to her apartment, which Pam says in her statement that she had done. So I suspect that Pam wrote this note. I don't think Keith has any reason to lie about the party, but Youngster, KD and Eva all do to varying extents. It also fits with the pot party question asked by Coyne. And it fits with a comment made by Karen Jeffley Stone, Jennifer's sister, on a Facebook thread about the murder recently. Quote, Eva's house was the hangout house for all the young people in that area at the time, end quote. So I would hypothesize that at least some of the occupants of the apartment and some of their friends probably did smoke some weed in the parking lot the night before and they probably did make a bit of noise. I don't know if that's significant in the murder, but I do think that's probably what happened. So that's the night before. I've explained what I think probably happened. Now we're moving on to the morning after and that's a good time to revisit where KD was sleeping. Remember, KD, Youngster and Jennifer all say KD was sleeping on the floor of the bedroom. Eva says she saw him in the chair in the living room. So let's assume that the three who put KD in the bedroom are right and Eva's wrong. That doesn't necessarily mean she's deliberately lying. For starters, she could be honestly mistaken. Remember things were happening very fast on a very emotional day. It's also worth noting that the night before, Youngster says while he was in the bedroom with Jennifer, KD was in the living room with Eva. So she could have got mixed up. Also, given that Jennifer and Youngster were in bed together all night, it's hardly a stretch to think that KD was in and out of the room to give them some privacy. I mean, are you going to stay in the room while your brother's in bed with his girlfriend? I'm not. It's also possible that Eva was deliberately lying to give herself an alibi during the murder. Personally, I think that's less likely than an honest mistake, but it's possible. Part of the reason I think it's less likely is because she describes Youngster and KD leaving the apartment with her while the screams were still going on, and they describe the same thing. So Eva doesn't really need the extra alibi of KD waking up in the living room with her. But even if she was trying to give herself an alibi, that doesn't mean she was involved in the murder. It could mean that she panicked, understandably for a young black woman with a criminal record being interviewed by the police. And she tried to make absolutely sure that the police knew there was no way she could be involved by falsifying an alibi. So that's the sleeping arrangements. What happened that morning? Well, first thing at 7.44am, Eva says she received a page from someone she identifies as Tommy. At trial, she says she knows Tommy from her work as a dancer, and she says she went straight back to sleep. At about 7.45, Zaragoza Gaza is driving in the parking lot of Green Arbor Apartments and sees a young black woman on the steps outside Catalina's apartment. At trial, he says she was peering over the fence into the apartment. There's been a lot of comment, particularly from Bob Ruff, arguing that Garza's description in court was completely different to his paraphrased oral statement given to officers at the time. Now, I don't agree, but we'll circle back to some of the issues with who witnesses actually saw later. Now, personally, I don't set a lot of store by Zaragoza Garza's statement. For starters, there's a time discrepancy. His police statement said he worked from 9pm till 7.30am, while at trial he said he worked from 6pm to 6am. His workplace was a little bit over half an hour's drive from Green Arbor Apartments. So if he finished at 7.30am, he couldn't have been back there for 7.45am, although it would work with the timings given at trial. So it's difficult to be confident in the timings given by Garza in either of his statements. Let's add to that that he was coming off a night shift, he's driving his car, he sees someone who he isn't looking for down a narrow alley that he has quite a restricted view of, it's hard to understand how he could accurately describe who he saw. He could have been looking down a different alley and seen a different stairwell. He could have seen someone innocently going about their day who, in Garza's mind after he heard about the murder, became this suspicious figure. 
And actually, he essentially says as much at trial. From the transcript, Prosecutor D. Glazer asks, quote, Tell the members of the jury what it was that you saw that kind of caught your attention. And he responds, quote, Well, at that moment, it was just... It wasn't nothing out of the ordinary, you know, because you see people looking into patios all the time. But after I seen the activity there with the police, I start thinking of this lady looking into that patio and just standing there and looking into it, you know, end quote. I completely understand why the state put him on the stand at trial though. Because his statement, if he did indeed see Jennifer as the state argued, would indicate that the murder involved premeditation in the form of casing the apartment. That backs up their theory of the case, but that doesn't mean it's a reliable statement. To be clear, I don't believe Zaragoza Garza was being dishonest. I think he wanted to help, I think he genuinely recalled seeing something, but I think it's possible that he got some details wrong, and I think it's possible that what he saw was not relevant to the case. But, you know, that's just my view. You might disagree, and I can't discount what he said completely based on what's just my opinion. So, for the timeline, sticking to the facts, at 7.45, Zaragoza Garza reports seeing a young black woman on the steps outside Kathleen's apartment, looking in over the fence. So, next at 8am is the last time anyone reports communicating with Catalina prior to Jennifer. Juan Mendiola, Catalina's nephew, told police that he phoned her at 8am, as he did every day, and that, quote, all was well at that time, end quote. He also testified to that at trial, so we can rule out the idea that Catalina had died any earlier than that. Interestingly, Mr and Mrs Mendiola told Bob Ruff in their interview that it wasn't Juan who called that morning, but it was his wife. I apologise, unfortunately I don't know her name. They seemed confident about this, despite the statements to the contrary. I think they must be misremembering the events of almost 25 years ago, although I guess it's possible that it was Mrs Mendiola who spoke to Catalina that morning, but she didn't want to speak to police, so they chose to tell them it was Juan who spoke to Catalina. I don't think that's likely, but I guess it's possible. The important part is that someone, probably Juan, spoke to Catalina at 8am. The next thing that happens is that Jennifer says she gets a page at 8.20 and a further page at 8.45 when she leaves to go to Janet's apartment. Jennifer said that Youngster handed her the pager at 8.20, but he didn't mention that. Although to be fair, he was probably half asleep and probably quite hungover. Youngster said the first thing he remembers that morning is, quote, I felt Jen getting out of the bed. That woke me up. I asked her what she was doing and she told me it was none of my business. She was wearing a real long black t-shirt. I just laid back down and went right back to sleep, end quote. I'm just going to highlight the, quote, none of your business statement here. It strikes me as an odd thing to say. Now, we don't know the tone or all of the context. It could have been a playful thing, or it could have been that Jennifer didn't like how Youngster asked, so she was a bit snarky in her response. Did Jennifer say that because she was going off to kill Catalina? I doubt it, to be honest. I think it's more likely to be because she was going to talk to Craig Peters, who, as we know, had been indicted for sexually assaulting her. But we have no way of knowing why Jennifer said that. We don't really know if she even did say it. Youngster could have made it up to minimise his knowledge of what happened that morning. I just think this statement is something to think about. So Jennifer said she got the page at 8.45 and she left the apartment. And Eva says Jennifer left 30 to 45 minutes before she heard the screaming, which fits with the murder occurring at around 9.30am, probably just afterwards. Jennifer says she goes to Janet Dorsey's, passing Catalina on the way and exchanging a brief hello with her. And this is the last time that anyone reports seeing Catalina alive. When Jennifer gets to Janet, she phones Craig Peters, then she phones the phone company to discuss Eva's phone, then she phones Craig again before going back to Eva's. Janet confirmed to police that Jennifer did visit her that morning. Officer Swainson did also briefly speak with Craig Peters, and he said at trial that he asked him to come to Green Arbor to make a statement, but he didn't turn up. So Craig never told the police that Jennifer had actually spoken to him that morning. 
But Craig said on Crime Watch Daily, and again to Bob Ruff, that Jennifer did speak to him that morning. I tend to believe that Jennifer did speak to Craig that morning, but like many things in this case, it can't be proven. Things get a bit confusing for our timeline here, primarily because something really quite hard to pin down happened at approximately this time. Two men, Broderick Smith, aka Red Rock, and House and Ram, walk up to the scene, have a chat with Jennifer outside Catalina's apartment, and then leave. Red Rock appears to be universally regarded as a, quote, dope fiend, end quote. Although his criminal record is clean apart from one charge for possession of weed, House and Ram, on the other hand, has a number of criminal convictions. In fact, he's currently in jail for sexual assault. That morning, Red Rock and Halson say they went to a woman called Wanda's to help her move, but she wasn't there, so they go to Eva's to see her instead. Strangely, Red Rock goes from not knowing Eva's name in his initial oral statement to police, and apparently not knowing it when he spoke to House nor Jennifer, to describing her as, quote, a friend of mine named Eva, end quote, in his written statement. Halson says in his oral statement, quote, they went across the parking lot and were heading to a girl's apartment. Halson had no idea where they were going, but he tagged along. End quote. And similarly in his written statement, quote, While in the area, Red Rock says that there is a girl he wants to mess around with. I agree to go over to the apartment with him. We crossed the main drive and were heading to the apartment. I don't know who he was planning on visiting, but I go along. End quote. So according to Howson, Red Rock didn't tell him Eva's name. In Red Rock's oral statement, it says, quote, Red Rock said to Ram that he wanted to visit the Mexican girl that lives in apartment number 8. End quote. This fits with Jennifer's statements in which she said, quote, Red Rock asked me about the Mexican that stayed upstairs. I said, who? Eva? He said, yeah, that's her name. End quote. And in another statement, quote, he said, where's the Mexican that stays upstairs? I figured he was talking about Eva because she is half Mexican. End quote. So how did she become, quote, a friend of mine named Eva? End quote. In his written statement. I say written, it's actually dictated, as it says typed by Sergeant Allen. I think this is probably the best evidence we have that the officers were not writing down exactly what was being said, and that they were quote-unquote helping witnesses with their statements. Given that Red Rock was schizophrenic, and apparently a heavy crack user, that might be understandable here. He was probably a very frustrating witness. It also isn't a significant change, but it does suggest that Allen might have altered what he said. Alternatively, of course, Red Rock could have just remembered Eva's name by the time he gave his full statement. Jennifer does say that she told Red Rock her name when he turned up at the apartment. It's just something to be aware of. Howson tells police that they head over to Eva's apartment because Red Rock wants to try and hook up with her. Apparently, helping people move and then trying to get laid is normal behaviour at 9am on a Tuesday for these guys. So they're outside, and as Red Rock starts to walk up the stairs to Eva's, they see Jennifer outside Catalina's front door. Jennifer tells them to leave because Eva is asleep. Howson tells police this is normal as people are often trying to get rid of Red Rock. Red Rock says that Howson, who he calls Michael, which is his middle name, quote, was talking about Jen and wanted to know who she was, end quote. I'll mention again at this point that Howson is now a convicted sex offender, which puts that comment about 15-year-old Jennifer into a worrying context. Anyway, they leave at Jennifer's request, but half an hour or so later they hear that there are police outside the apartment and they return there. If you watch the crime scene video, you can see an orange bike on the ground from 1 minute 27 to 1 minute 34, like the bike that Howson was riding. But I don't see anyone matching the description of Howson. There is a tall man wearing a baseball cap, a dark jacket and dark trousers at 1 minute 4 to 1 minute 12, which are the clothes that 6 foot 3 Red Rock was wearing, so that might be him. Both of them give oral statements to police at the scene. 
So during the key interaction with Jennifer outside Catalina's, apparently neither Housen or Red Rock saw the killers. They didn't see them enter, they didn't see them leave, they didn't hear any screaming, and they didn't see Eva, KD, or Youngster. But Jennifer says her interaction with them happened after Eva ran to the office, which would mean they should have heard screaming or seen the killers leave. Youngster mentions seeing them there when he comes downstairs, but neither Eva or KD mentioned them. That's why this incident is so hard to pin down, but I think this next statement sheds some light on it. Catalina's neighbour, June Sage, gave an oral statement to police which appears to confirm that she saw Jennifer at the door, as Red Rock and Housen said. I think we should exercise serious caution with June's statement though. She was an elderly lady, and she was in a bad way at the time. According to the police report, she had three paramedics looking after her, using a heart monitor to check her condition. June asked for them to be allowed to remain present during the interview, along with Janine, one of the apartment managers. The officer also states that June, quote, had a difficult time keeping her thoughts focused on the events of this morning. At times she would begin to articulate events that occurred at an earlier time, end quote. At the end of the interview, some of June's friends came to pick her up, helped her to their car, and tell police and staff that she's going to stay with them. So it's pretty clear that, unsurprisingly, June was in some distress following her next door neighbor's murder. With that caveat in mind, let's look at what June said, quote, at around 9.30am or so, someone knocked on her front door. When she got to the door, she looked out of the peephole. Outside, she observed a young black female that she described as short, disarray and two-toned hair which was pulled back. The female was wearing a black t-shirt. She was quite sure that the young girl found at the door is one of the girls from the upstairs apartment. June Sage did not open the door or respond to the visitor. She then watched the young girl go to her neighbour's apartment and begin knocking on the complainant's door. A few minutes later, she observed two or three black males come into the same area. The black males left, and then she left the door's peephole. End quote. So, we have Jennifer saying that she was outside Catalina's door and talking to Red Rock and Housen. Red Rock and Housen confirmed that it happened. Youngster also says he saw it, and June says she saw one of the black girls from upstairs banging on her door and then her neighbour's door before, quote, two or three black males, end quote, come into the area and leave. Bob Ruff has argued that June actually saw a different black girl, presumably Eva, and two or three black men who weren't Red Rock or Housen, because June doesn't mention that House was on a bike, and that Red Rock started up the stairs, or that they spoke to Jennifer at all. And I guess it's possible that there were another group of people present who weren't seen by anyone except June, but I think it's far more likely that June simply left out details because she was distressed, confused, and receiving medical care. June didn't testify at trial, but I don't think that's suspicious. She was elderly, she was very distressed, and it's possible that the prosecution just thought she wouldn't be a useful witness, or that there was no point in re-traumatising her when they already had a solid case. Jennifer, Red Rock and Housen all say that Jennifer was at the door talking to Red Rock and Housen, so I think the person that Jean saw at the door at approximately the same time is very likely to be Jennifer Jeffley. That takes us up to around 9.30am, immediately before Catalina's murder. And that takes us almost to the end of today's episode. To recap, the night before the murder, Katie, Youngster and Jennifer all slept at Eva's, probably drinking, smoking weed and making some noise outside in the process. Juan Mendiola speaks to Catalina on the phone at about 8am. Jennifer gets a page at 8.45 and leaves the apartment to go to Janet's and call Craig. At around 9.30am, Redrock and Housen, and probably June Sage, see Jennifer outside Catalina's door. Oh, and there's one more thing. Remember that neither KD or Eva saw Jennifer, Red Rock or Housen while Catalina was screaming, even though Jennifer and Youngster say she was there? Well, there's one more thing that June said that explains why. Quote, The black males left, and then she left the door's peephole. 
A few moments later, June Sage described that it sounded like something was being thrown around in the neighbor's apartment, followed by a blood-curdling scream coming from the apartment. Then it got quiet, end quote. So Jennifer was knocking on Catalina's door immediately before her murder, not afterwards. That doesn't look good for her claims of innocence. I'll continue looking through the witness statements in episode 3, Something Was Wrong. If you have any questions or feedback then please email me at danny10601 outlook.com and remember to check out all the case files yourself at jenniferjeffleycase.wordpress.com. Thank you.